0: To the Science of Everything podcast episode seventy-four, minerals and rocks. I'm your host James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to take a look at rocks and minerals. So we'll start with uh, looking at minerals. We'll define what a mineral is and look at some of the properties of different minerals, so crystal structure and habit, hardness, luster, cleavage, uh, and things like that. And then I'll go through just some of the um, main mineral classes, in particular the silicates, uh, halides, um, sulfides, oxides, some of the other main types of minerals and then I'll move on to start talking about rocks.'ll give a brief definition of rocks. We'll look at the three main types of rocks igneous sedimentary and metamorphic, um, some of the subclassifications within each and a, a few of the different properties and uh, other interesting tidbits. No particular recommended background uh, for this episode, although, some basic knowledge of chemistry. So, for example, the sort of thing that I talk about in episode 8, atoms and molecules, um, would be somewhat helpful for some of the discussion about minerals. Okay, so uh, let's make a start. So, uh, first of all, starting with minerals. You've probably heard of minerals before. You may have heard of them in the context of vitamins and minerals. That's a nutrition context. The definition of mineral there is not the same as the definition of mineral used in geology so it's the latter that I'm going to be focusing on here. In geology uh, a mineral is a naturally occurring substance that has a specific chemical formula and a crystal structure and it's inorganic so those are the four shortitudinal properties inorganic specific chemical formula naturally occurring crystalline structure however some of those have uh, come under some dispute or debate recently Um, particularly the having a specific chemical formula and being um, completely inorganic that is not derived from biogenic processes because there are some minerals or mineral-like substances that are biogenic um, and there are others that have some variability in their chemical formula so those are somewhat ambiguous requirements. Um, Naturally occurring in crystal structure though are essential, so if something's man-made, it's not considered to be a mineral, um, having a crystal structure means that it the atoms are arranged in an orderly lattice-like arrangement structure. Um, so glass, for example, is not considered to be a mineral, well, it's generally man-made for starters, but uh, secondly, it does not have a naturally occurring, uh, sorry, it does not have a regularly structured crystal arrangement of the atoms, they're sort of jumbled together in an amorphous structure. So, the concept of mineral isn't necessarily extremely well defined, but it's, it's a useful category. Um, I would say it's probably not something that is sort of given to us by nature because really there's just different mineral combinations, uh, sorry, different uh, combinations of atoms and, and compounds. But um, the study of minerals is a, is a well historically ground discipline, so it's a useful concept to have. So, basically, when we think of mineral, think of a naturally occurring crystalline. Uh, structure. A mineral is not the same as a rock, we'll get to that later, but a rock can be comprised of many different minerals, and a mineral in turn can be comprised of many different atoms and compounds. So think of them as a hierarchy, atoms, molecules, then uh, minerals, and then rocks. So now that we have some idea of what minerals are, let's talk a bit about the different physical properties of minerals. This is one of the uh, key things we want to know when we have a mineral sample, or talking about a different, a new type of mineral, what are its physical properties? So there are a number of different physical properties of minerals that are typically of interest. The crystal structure is the most basic, essentially, because that defines the structure of the mineral. So all, all minerals have a regular crystalline lattice arrangement, and that means that there must be a certain symmetry to the arrangement of the atoms or compounds that make up the mineral. Symmetry is really a mathematical concept. You, you can think of it uh, uh, an arrangement as being symmetrical when you can do something to it and leave it looking the same afterwards. So, for example, if you take a square, if I rotate the square by 45 degrees, then it looks like a diamond. It's not the same. So it doesn't have a 45-degree rotational symmetry. But if I rotate it by 90 degrees, then I rotate it around sort of by one full side, it looks the same again. So it has 90-degree rotational symmetry. If I just drew a random strange blob-looking shape, that would not, probably would not have 90 degree rotational symmetry. Now if I imagine a circle, that has any degree rotational symmetry, no matter what degree I rotate the circle about its central axis, it looks the same, it doesn't change. So you see different shapes have different types of symmetries, and that applies to three dimensions just as well as it does to two. So different crystal uh, structures can be described and defined by the types of symmetries that they have. This can studied mathematically. and gets quite complicated. We're not going to go into details. I just want you to get the idea that different crystal structures can be categorized according to what types of symmetries they have. And so we have a number of crystal families, isometric, tetragonal, orthorhombic, hexagonal, monoclinic, and triclinic. I won't really describe exactly what the difference between those are. Um, the, the main point to get is that, that they're classified according to whether the side lengths are the same and whether all the internal angles are the same. So, for example, if you had a, uh, a cube, all the sides are the same, all the internal angles are the same, that would be an isometric crystal uh, structure. Triclinic is the opposite extreme, where all the side lengths are different and all the internal angles are different. So you can think of that as a sort of a uh, an irregular prismatic structure with all different sides and angles, a bit hard to explain. And then all the ones in between sort of have various different combinations of same sides and or same angles, some the same, some different. Like rectangular prisms and things like that. That's the hand-wavy way of explaining the difference between these crystal families. And um, th- th- this is important because the crystal family that a-, a particular mineral belongs to has will have an effect on some of the other physical properties as we'll see. One property of minerals that you may be familiar with, it's one that for some reason people just seem to know about, it's taught in primary schools or uh, whatever, is uh, hardness, Mohs scale of hardness, which runs from 1 to 10. Talc at being the lowest and diamond being the highest of 10. Now hardness is a property that defines how much a mineral is resistant to scratching. So basically if you get two minerals and you scratch one along the surface of the other. The question is, does it make a, a mark? Does it make a permanent scratch? If it does, the mineral is said to scratch the other one and therefore it's harder than the other mineral. So diamond scratches everything, so that's why it's the hardest at 10. Talc doesn't scratch anything none of the other main ones anyway, and so it gets a a value of 1, and the others in between. Moh's scale of hardness is only an ordinal scale, so it just says what scratches what, it it puts them in an order, but it doesn't give any absolute value as to how hard they are. There are other scales which do that, which put them on an absolute level, um, but those tend to be much um, more esoteric. I want to point out also that diamond is not the hard, the absolute hardest chemical substance. It's just the hardest mineral. So remember, minerals are naturally occurring, and we have been able to create synthetic substances which are harder than diamond, but they're not minerals, so, because they're not naturally occurring, so they don't, um, displace di- diamond on that, that scale. Another important property of minerals is luster. So that basically refers to how reflective the surface of the mineral is. Um, how shiny, essentially. And there are different uh, words that are used to describe luster, um, depending upon the exact qualities of the shininess or the external appearance of metal, basically. Some minerals don't have luster, so that's called a dull or an earthy luster. They kind of look like, well, earthish, sort of. Not necessarily earth colour, but that sort of textured, not shiny appearance that earth has. There's some that look kind of greasy, some that are metallic, so they look like metal, some that are pearly, resinous, silky. Vitrinous, which look kind of like glass, waxy. The, the luster of a mineral is often determined by, as you would expect, the crystal structure and the, um, the, the, the chemical compounds that make up the minerals. Um, so there's often a lot of interesting, even quantum mechanical effects that can go into determining both the colour and luster of a, a mineral, which, um, based on how exactly the light interacts with the, um, the mineral structure, Again, I'm not going to go into the details of that. Just to give you a sense of it, I recommend looking up uh, luster or mineral luster on Google Images, so you can see some examples of these. I'll post some up onto the Facebook as I tend to do. Another property of minerals is one of the most obvious is color. Now, color is a tricky one because it's it's typically thought of as a non-diagnostic criteria uh, property. So, what what is meant by that is that when a mineralogist is looking at a mineral sample, they'll try and identify what mineral it is, what what collection of minerals it might be. So, um. The, the luster could be one property that they'll use, what it looks like in terms of how it reflects the light. Hardness could be another one, uh, and there are some others as well, like streak and cleavage and habit that we'll get to. Uh, specific gravity, basically how heavy it is. But colour is typically considered to be non diagnostic. In other words, you can't tell what mineral a sample is based on what colour it is, in general. Now, the reason for that is because the colour of minerals is often determined by small impurities within um, the, the mineral structure. So small quantities of um, iron or aluminium or something like that, anything really it can be, that, that significantly affect the, the colour. A really good example of this is ruby and sapphire. So ruby and sapphire are actually the, ma- the same mineral. They're both corundum, which is a, which is actually nine on the hardness scale. Uh, so, so really they're the same. They just have slightly different um, impurities within the mineral structure, which lead them to be red and, and green. Uh, respectively, they're not different minerals. So that's an example of how colour is not diagnostic. So it's not very useful in most cases to, to, to see what colour a mineral is. Although there are a few notable examples, like gold, for example. Uh, it has a fairly distinctive colour, but for the most part, colour is non-diagnostic. Streak is something that's related to colour, but is more useful. Streak refers to the colour of mineral in powdered form, which is often different to how it looks in, uh, in, in the body crystalline, uh, crystalline form and that's often more useful. So a common way of determining this is to take the uh, rock sample or the, the mineral sample and literally streak it along a, a slab of porcelain and look at what colour it is there. So that grinds up a small proportion small of the mineral, so it's, you can see it in powdered form and look at what colour it is, and that's often use, more useful than, um, than the, the colour of the, the, the body mineral. Another property that I, I mentioned earlier is uh, crystal habit. It's a little bit of an odd name, but it refers to the, basically, characteristic external shape of a a crystal or a a mineral sample. Now, it differs from luster in that luster refers to sort of the shininess of a mineral. It, It doesn't have to be shiny, necessarily, but it's how it reflects the light. Whereas habit refers to the shape. So, I guess one way of putting this is that luster would really require you to look at it, whereas habit, at least in theory, you could tell by just feeling it, I guess. So that's that's the difference. Often, um, as a, a novice, and I'm a relative novice, these sorts of things, it's somewhat difficult to discern whether um, the difference between a you know, crystal habit and colour and luster, because they're kind of all mixed together when you just naively look at it, but when you get more uh, practice with this sort of thing, you can distinguish the difference between colour and luster and, and habit and some of the other properties. Anyway, um, crystals have a, a very large, a wide range of external appearances, and again, I'd recommend having a Google search, doing a Google search to to see this. Um, I won't talk about all of the technical names, because they're hard to pronounce, but um, I'll just give you a sense of them. Some crystal forms form needle-like, tapered projections, where they literally look like pin cushions, or porcupines, they're kind of scary-looking, actually. Others have like almond-shaped, knotty sort of a structure to them. Uh, Some of them have a grape-like To them, so hematite is an example of that. Um, They look quite odd actually. Um, Some are more columnar, others are more cubic in shape, look like almost a ball cube if you're familiar with Star Trek. Some are dendritic, so they have tree like uh, structure. Some are hexagonal, so um, quartz is a famous example of that. You see a, a sort of a largely transparent or translucent hexagonal crystal. That's probably quartz. Quartz is very, really one of the most common mineral. Minerals in the, in the in the Earth's crust um, There are octahedral structures, prismatic structures. Some of them are even round. There are all sorts of really interesting uh, structures that crystals take. Um, it should be noted that the habit of a crystal is not just determined by the mineral composition, um, although it is determined partly by that. But it's also determined by the uh, growing environments. So minerals typically form over sort of crystal structures form over a period of time, and in order for the Orderly arrangement of atoms to or, or compounds to take shape. A certain amount of time is needed. Um, if a if a sample of mineral is cooled very rapidly, for example, or is formed under a very high pressure, it might not have the time or the sort of space to form an, its normal orderly lattice arrangement. And so it may adopt an amorphous structure, or it may adopt a different crystal lattice arrangement depending on the temperature and pressure and the time that it has to form. So the crystal habit and, and structure is not always purely a, a matter of the, the mineral composition, but also the, the growing environment. Another important property of minerals is called cleavage. So cleavage relates to what particular the, the particular way in which a crystal structure will break, or, or preferentially breaks. Cleaves, in other words, planes of weakness in the crystal lattice. So so this is formed by the fact that different minerals have uh, different bonding arrangements, and some of these bonding arrangements lead to characteristic planes of weakness, so particular um, particular places or ways in which the, the, the crystal will tend to break, and this leads to characteristic uh, planes of cleavage, which can be used to identify the minerals. So uh, a, a good example of this is... Um, is micas. So micas have a characteristic two-dimensional arrangement, basically like layers on top of each other. And so those will tend to cleave, obviously, between the layers, because the bonding between the layers is much weaker than the bonding within a layer. Um, Whereas something like diamond has a three-dimensional structure, so it it doesn't have that same sort of two-dimensional. So now that we've talked about some of the main properties of of minerals, so there's the external appearance in terms of shape, which is the habit. There's uh, cleavage planes, which relate in particular to the... um, crystal structure the uh, in terms of the, the symmetries that are present. There's hardness, which is, relates to its ability to avoid scratch, being scratched. Luster, which is basically shiny as color and streak. Um, so now that we've gone over some of those properties, I want to talk a bit about some of the different mineral classes. So there are several thousand different um, types of minerals that are recognized. According to Wikipedia, over 5,000. Depends exactly how they've been classified. Each basically each mineral has its own specific chemical composition so that is a specific arrangement of a specific uh specific ratios of atoms in regular patterns constitute a, a mineral and if the atoms are different uh, or in different ratios then it's a different mineral there are some exceptions to that where you can have sort of very variable proportions but in basically that's that's how it works and again that's different to a rock which we'll get to later that don't have a specific chemical composition now the different mineral classes are basically determined by the composition, as you would expect, because the composition, in turn, will determine the, um, the chemical composition. In turn, determines the physical properties that we mentioned earlier. The Earth's crust, where you know, basically the minerals that we know and study uh, are found, is comprised mostly of silicon and oxygen. Oxygen, we, we know that's in the atmosphere, but it's also in the um, in the crust. Silicon is the element that's used to make a lot of electronic components because it's used as semiconductor. It's the main component of sand and, well, really most rocks. Silicon is everywhere. Um, it's it's just below carbon on the periodic table in terms of it, it's it's in the same group but, but one, um, one row down. So that leads us to the most important class of, of minerals by far and away, something like 90-95% of minerals that make up rocks and in terms of by mass composition of the crust um, are silicate minerals. So if you, you know, go around and pick up a random rock, it's almost certainly made mostly of silica, silicate minerals. That leads us to talk about um, what distinguishes the silicate mineral structure, or well, class, which is uh, the silicate ion, or silica. Now this is comprised of a single silicon atom, uh, surrounded on four sides in a tetragonal structure by oxygen atoms, so it forms a tetragonal py- uh, pyramid basically. So although all of the sides are equal, so because it's symmetrical, it's a little bit hard to explain. If you just do a Google search for silicate ion, you'll, you'll see what it looks like. I, again, I'll post this on the Facebook. So There's basically four oxygen atoms spread equally uh, around a central silicon atom. So a silicon ion has a charge of plus four, because it loses its four valence electrons. It has the same number of valence electrons as carbon, and then it binds to four oxygen ions, which have a, which have a charge of minus two. Basically, because oxygen is a very strong oxidant, so it tends to grab onto electrons. Uh, so it has, uh, it, it tends to form a minus two charge. It has. Um, a deficiency of two electrons in its valence shell, so when it fills up its valence shell it will have a charge of minus two. So when you have four oxygen atoms surrounding a central silicon ion, the entire unit, the silicate ion, will have a charge of minus four. So you can't just have a... You can't just mush a bunch of silicate ions together because the entire structure resulting structure would have an enormous... uh, Minus charge, which isn't stable. So there's a few ways that silicate ions c- combine together to form silicate minerals. And basically, the, the class of silicate minerals is comprised of just different arrangements of these silicate ions. So the, the tetragonal structures combining together in different ways with themselves and also with other um, with other substances or with other elements compounds. So the so the, the main different uh, classes of silicate minerals are defined by the, I suppose you could think of it as the dimensionality of the structure of the the silicate ions with respect to each other. So you can have isolated tetrahedra, and in order to balance out the charge, you'll need to have uh, positively charged ions um, spread throughout the lattice as well, so typically those can be magnesium or iron or other metals like that. Metals are typically positively charged when they're in the ionic form. And so that's olivine. Olivine is comprised of single uh, tetrahedron units with the charge balanced out by cations. It doesn't have any cleavage planes because there's no characteristic planes of weakness. Pyroxene are basically single chains of silica joined together And the way that works is, if you think of, remember that we have a central silicon atom surrounded by four oxygen ions, well, if you put another silicon ion next to it, it can share uh, some of those oxygens with uh, the next one, which can in turn share more on the other side with the oxygen, uh, with the silicon next to that, and so on and so on, so you can form a chain. That reduces the overall ratio of oxygen um, to silicon, because you're basically doubling up on using the same oxygen for two different silicon. So you don't need as many positively charged cations. Um, those tend to have... so these pyroxenes have, tend to have two um, planes of cleavage at right angles because there are the single chain, and then there are the two dimensions um, that, that don't have the chain structure. Amphiboles uh, are the next class, so they're double chains. So basically the same as pyroxenes except there are two chains rather than one. Micas, which I've already mentioned, form sheaths. So instead of just sharing oxygens between silica in one dimension along a line, they share it in two dimensions. So they form planes. So those have a single plane of of cleavage, basically, um, along the plane of the... um, between the the planes of the sheets, where the, the bonding is weakest. So these still need to have cations to offset the negative charge, but they don't need as many again, because the oxygen ions are being shared by more silicons, thereby reducing the the total amount of negative charge that has to be offset. Next class of feldspars. So these are uh, three-dimensional networks of silicate ions, where the uh, oxygens are shared in three dimensions instead of only two in the case of the sheets, in the case of the micas. Feldspars, though, still have some cations offsetting the Uh, negative charge because there's still some residual charge there in particular potassium and aluminium are fairly common in the feldspars as well as the micas. Um, Quartz is the final class of silicate minerals and it is comprised purely of silicon dioxide so there are no cations, at least in pure quartz and it's purely a uh, three-dimensional lattice where all of the oxygen ions are shared between surrounding silica. So it's a very simple uh, structure. Quartz is also the most common single mineral in the Earth's crust, uh, I believe, and it's a very common component of, of rocks. As I said, if you find hexagonal, largely translucent crystals, those are probably quartz, very common, and it's because the its co- constituents, silicon and oxygen are, are very common as well. So basically you can think about the silicate groups as having starting from independent tetrahedra, which have a 4 to 1 oxygen to silicon ratio, and then a, a uh, continual decline of the relative amount of oxygen as more and more oxygens are shared between silica um, until you reach quartz, which is has a, a 2 to 1 oxygen to silicon ratio and therefore doesn't need any offsetting uh, cations to, to balance out the negative charge. You can see in this simple example how the mineral structure Leads directly to properties like cleavage, for example, because um, the dimensionality of the sharing of uh, oxygens with surrounding silica, whether it's chains or sheets or, or three dimensions frameworks, um, determines what sort of cleavage planes the um, the resulting crystal has. You can also um, imagine how that's going to also affect things like the luster and um, habit and other crystal properties. So those are those are the silicates. They're the most uh, common. Most abundant and most important type of, of minerals. So, so the, the different classes that I mentioned olivine, pyroxene, amphibole, micas, feldspars, and quartz, but many of those have multiple different types of minerals within them. So, for example, feldspars come in orthoclase and um, plagioclase forms, um, depending on mostly the cations that are offsetting the negative charge, and exactly what structure and arrangement they're in. And there are many, many different types of these. So these are classes, not specific minerals that I've been talking about. So silica- silica- uh, having discussed the uh, main classes of minerals, there's one other uh, specific class of um, silicate, which I want to discuss before moving on to the non-silicate minerals. And, and these are the um, so-called silicates. Um, they are a, they're a class of sheet minerals, so they're sort of like they have a mica-like structure. They're sheets. Um, the reason these are important is because these is because clay minerals are a type of phyllosilicate. Clay minerals are a particular type of phyllosilicates, um, which are hydrous, so they're hydrated. They have water associated with the structure, and they're particularly important because clay minerals are characteristic of soil. So soils are basically defined as clay minerals combined with um, organic components. We'll talk more about this hopefully in a future episode if we'll I talk more about soil but um, I think it's interesting that even a basic understanding of the structure of silicates and the, the classification can give one a sense of what is different about a clay mineral and therefore why soil is so um, characteristic. Clay minerals um, have a lot of very interesting properties which make them very useful for what we're growing in and um, uh, suitable for plant development basically. will talk about that later, hopefully. They're also thought to have been important in abiogenesis, the beginning of life. So they're um, very closely associated with living organisms in, in a number of ways. So I just wanted to mention those. Now it's time to move on to the non-silicate minerals. So again, there are many thousands of, of these, but I'm just going to talk about the broad groups, classes of minerals. The main ones that I want to discuss are the carbonates, sulfides, oxides, sulfates, halides, and native elements. So you can see that really the way that minerals are grouped is by a characteristic element that's present in their structure or or compound. So in the case of silicates, it's the it's the, the silicate ion, the SiO4 structure, which is found in all silicates. In the case of carbonates, it's the CO3 um, carbonate compound, which is characteristic of carbonate minerals. Carbonates are particularly important. They're typically formed um that, well, they're often biogenic minerals. That is, they're formed by the the dissolution and subsequent crystallization out of solution of well, of carbonate, which is a which is a compound that's commonly found in the shells of marine organisms. So, when these die, the um, the calcium calcium carbonate can often be uh, often is dissolved, and later it may um, recrystallize. Through various means, um, forming carbonate minerals. One common instance of carbonate minerals that people may be familiar with is found in caves. So the um, you know famous cave structures, stalactites and stalagmites. These are carbonates. They're formed by calcium carbonate precipitating out of water and then forming these um, structures. Basically, as so they uh, drip down the calcium as the water drips on uh, you know a small protuberance in in a rock um, the calcium carbonate can precipitate out forming, well, carbonate minerals rocks basically, and then elongating the protuberance leading it to extend further and further down or up sometimes so there, calcium carbonate is the main constituent of uh, limestone and um, other rocks like that and uh, these these um, minerals often have they often look quite beautiful so Marble is a form of limestone, basically. It's formed by limestone that's been subject to metamorphic pressures, loosely speaking. And it's often used in, in building. But the trouble with carbonates, and including limestone and marble, is that they react uh, very readily with acid, which is... a Diagnostic criteria actually, um, and that means that they are quite susceptible to erosion, acid rain, and other things like that. So they're actually not great as building materials, even though they look quite nice. Sulphates um, contain a sulphate ion, which is SO4 2-. They're commonly formed as evaporites, so that's sort of what's left over when um, salty water evaporates. Basically, oxides are a very important class of minerals. They're they're defined by the presence of Oxygen basically, uh, particularly the O2 anion. Typically what happens is the oxygen is a very, as mentioned, a very strong oxidizer, so it likes to grab on to electrons basically. And so it will tend to uh, form compounds with elements that are reducing agents basically, meaning that they tend to give up electrons. And these uh, elements that are typical, that are good producing agents that are giving up electrons are uh, typically metals. So metals form positively charged cations, which, as I mentioned earlier, and so they form a a natural pair to the negatively charged oxide um, compound. So oxides are typically basically metal cations combined neutralized out, uh, the charge neutralized out, by combining with oxygen in, in various ratios depending on the charge and other factors. So corundum is an oxide, it's an aluminium oxide, so it's actually just combined, compri- comprised of aluminium combined with oxygen. Many of the ores that we use to extract uh, metals, so like aluminium for example, or iron, are oxides, typically because these metals um, readily combine with oxygen, so that's actually what happens when an iron substance rusts. Pure iron is unstable in atmospheric conditions, so it tends to react with oxygen to form... So many metals are like this. They'll tend to react with um, atmospheric oxygen to form um, oxide, basically, and these are the um, ore forms that we mine and then purify to obtain um, these minerals. So oxides have quite a lot of economic value because of the metals that they contain. Sulfides um, are a class that includes um, sulfide ions, so including pyrite that I mentioned earlier, that's iron sulfide. Pyrite has a brassy colour, which looks a little bit like gold, sort of a pale yellow, and so can be known as uh, fool's gold. If you see rocks that have sort of small flecks of brassy, pale yellowish-looking substances, that's probably not gold. It's probably pyrite. Gold is actually much more impressive than pyrite if you compare them next to each other. But anyway, and uh, finally, the last class that I want to talk about are Well, second last class actually, halides, so these include halogens, fluorine, chlorine, iodine, bromide, as the main anion, so negatively charged uh, metal there. So, um, fluorite and halite, not to be distinguished, not to be confused with the class name, halide, um, which is calcium chloride, uh, sorry, sodium chloride table salt, um, that's actually a mineral, halite, um, because it includes chloride. Fluorite, similar, includes fluorine. These are often formed as evaporites. So again, what's what what sort of left over um, when water evaporates? They also have important economic uses. Obviously, the last, the very last class that I want to talk about are the so-called native elements. So these are probably the easiest to recognise and understand because they they have they have the simplest uh, chemical structure. The native element is just a single element by itself, not bound or bonded to anything else. There are not many native elements that are found uh, naturally, and they have to be found naturally because otherwise they're not considered minerals, um, but there are a few. So a diamond is one. Um, diamond is can be found naturally and it has a regular crystalline lattice arrangement and it's formed completely of carbon, just carbon arranged in a particular lattice structure. So that's uh, a mineral in a native element. Um, Gold and silver are two other prominent examples. They can be found in their native form. The reason that they're not typically found, or very, well, particularly gold is pretty much never found, um, amount to anything else, is because they're fairly inert, especially gold. They don't really react very readily with other things like oxygen, for example. So they're just found in native form, which makes mining for gold and silver easier in some sense than mining for iron or aluminium, which have to be extracted often at great cost. Um, or historically a great cost anyway from um, uh, from from the oxygen and other elements that might be found in their ores so that exhausts the major mineral classes that I wanted to discuss obviously there's a lot more detail to go into there briefly now I want to just look at the three main types of well talk about what rocks are and then the three main types of rocks I don't want to go into I want to go into even less detail here than I did with minerals because there's a lot more to say about rocks in particular because um, different types of rocks are associated with different um, geological processes in a way that's not as directly relevant to minerals, and so they're more readily discussed in detail when I discuss, for example, volcanoes in the context of igneous rocks and um, uh, various erosion and deposition processes when I discuss sedimentary rocks, tectonic plates when I discuss um, uh, metamorphic rocks. So I don't want to go into a very large amount of detail here because they're naturally discussed in other settings. But I do want to introduce the concept of rock and briefly discuss the main classes. So what is a rock? I mean, we think we all know what rocks are. Interesting thought exercise is to imagine how you would define a rock to someone who's never seen one before. Um, Not as easy as you might think. So in geology, a rock is a naturally occurring solid aggregate of one or more minerals or sometimes mineraloids, which are basically mineraloids are substances that meet some, but not all of the four characteristics of minerals that we mentioned earlier, but I'm not too interested in that. Basically, they're formed of, so basically, rocks are solid aggregates formed of minerals. Aggregate means they're sort of just combined together. Rocks don't have a specific chemical composition. So if I tell you this is a mineral, you can legitimately ask me uh, to write down the chemical formula for that mineral. Is it must have one if it's a mineral. Sometimes it's simple, sometimes they're very complicated, but they must have one. If I asked you to write down the chemical formula of for a rock, you would legitimately just look at me confused, because rocks don't have, or at least in general, don't have specific chemical formula. That's the main difference between a, chem- a rock and a mineral. Rocks can be made out of many different minerals. So there are sort of a level up in organisation, as I mentioned earlier, uh, from from minerals, if you want to think of it that way. Of course, a rock could be made of a single mineral. A rock could even be made of a single element. You could have a rock which is basically pure 100% gold, for example, a gold nugget. That's basically a rock that's only one element. Those are pretty rare, though, but it's possible. Now, as I mentioned, there are three different types of rocks, igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. Now, again, uh, this may be slightly heretical... It's my opinion that the boundaries between these three types of rocks are more conventional than absolute. So, as we'll see hopefully in future episodes if I get around to talking about the processes that go to forming sedimentary, metamorphic, and igneous rocks, really there's a bit of a fuzzy boundary between them. There's a bit of a fuzzy boundary between a sedimentary and a metamorphic rock a metamorphic and an igneous rock. but nonetheless, it's still very useful um, to talk about the three classes, because in most cases it's fairly clear um, which class a given rock falls in. An igneous rock, comes from Latin word for fire, forms through the cooling and solidification of magma, or lava. Basically, magma or lava is just molten rock. Magma is under the earth's surface, lava is on the surface of the earth. It's just molten rock, in, literally in a liquid form. When uh, magma solidifies, or lava solidifies, it forms an igneous rock. The particular structure and composition of an igneous rock is determined mostly by the temperature and pressure at which it solidifies, um, and also the time span at which it solidifies, or crystallizes. Most igneous rocks are uh, comprised mostly of silicate minerals. That applies to most rocks, I suppose, but especially igneous rocks, because most of the earth's crust is comprised of silicates, so it's not surprising that the rocks we get out of it, are, when the magma crystallizes, are um, Highly silicate enriched. Mostly, the classification within uh, igneous rocks de- t- is dependent upon how much silicate is in it. So, so-called granitic rocks are relatively enriched in silica. So-called bol- um, <coughs> basalt rocks are relatively um, uh, deficient in silica, and andesitic rocks are in between. Um, when I when I say enriched and deficient, um, it's important to bear in mind that even basalt, bol- uh, sorry, basalt basaltic rocks. Have like 50% plus silica. Usually, it's just that andesitic and granitic rocks have even more, like 60, 70%. So it's it's to do with how much silica, but they all have a fairly large amount of silica. That's why I said if you just pick up a random rock, it's probably mostly made of silica, because of silicate minerals, because they're just that common. Um, so volcanoes, when they spew out lava and that um, crystallizes, solidifies, that's an igneous rock. Moving on to sedimentary rocks, these are the most common rocks that you probably see if you just pick up a random rock on the Earth's surface, although it does depend where you live. Sedimentary rocks are formed by sedimentary processes, so uh, they're formed on the Earth's surface by the accumulation and sedimentation of fragments of other rocks and minerals, and sometimes organisms as well, Uh, so fossils are only found in sedimentary rocks, for example sedimentary rocks are always made of previous rocks, so ultimately you can think of everything derived from an igneous rock at some point, I guess, if only because if you go far back, far enough back in time, all of the Earth's surface was molten and there were no solid rocks, so the first of those that crystallised were the first igneous rocks, and then um, when weather processes began um, to break up those igneous rocks and transport them and reform them, sediment them and combine them together into the first sedimentary rocks, then we had the first sedimentary rocks, and so on. The, the Classification within sedimentary rocks is mostly determined by the size of the particles that come together to form sediments. So you, anything from big boulders to tiny clay particles and in between, and also the process that I guess combines them together. So um, you can have chemical precipitants. Um, so basically the water evaporates, leaving chemical evaporate rocks behind. Um, or you can have temperature and pressure. You can have plastic sedimentary rocks. So, so there are different processes that can lead to um, sedimentary rock formation. But sedimentary rocks are basically um, products of erosion and transportation through uh, weathering processes, in particular wind, water, ice, glaciers, and also uh, mass movement, so um, mass wastage, that's the gravity basically, and also uh, bio, biological processes. So, tree roots, for example, can break up rocks and animals can dig and things like that. So, all of these processes lead to the formation of sedimentary rocks. Fossilization, as I mentioned, also considered sedimentary rocks. Final type of rock, the metamorphic rocks. Metamorph- metamorphic rocks are formed by subjecting any type of rock, including sedimentary, igneous, or another metamorphic rock, to sufficient temperature and pressure, which lead to a change in the in the not the chemical composition, but the chemical uh, structure of the rock. So, metamorphism basically means change in form, and that's what happens to a metamorphic rock. Where it changes in form, but generally not in composition. Now, it's important to note. that if you subject a rock to high enough temperatures and pressure, it will melt. If it melts and then recrystallizes, it's an igneous rock. It's not a metamorphic rock. In order for a rock to be igneous, it must melt. If it does not quite melt, if it's subjected to temperature and pressure which can, um, cause it to become, start to flow, to become plastic, but doesn't melt, then it's, uh, then it gives rise to what we call a metamorphic rock. So you can see how there's scope for sort of some, a grey zone where it like partially melts, but doesn't completely melt. So, the uh, classification of metamorphic rocks is usually based on how metamorphized they have they were. Um, we talk about the grade of metamorphism. So basically, the higher temperature and pressure, and the longer that they were subjected uh, to it, the more highly, uh, the higher the grade of the metamorphic rock, and the more foliated they tend to become. Foliated meaning that you can observe distinct bands within within the rock, and that tends to those tend to occur as a result of significant um, pressure and temperature. There are non-foliated metamorphic rocks like marble, but many metamorphic rocks are foliated, so if you see those foliations, um, that can be assigned to metamorphic rocks. And the more distinctive they are, typically the, the higher grade they are. So, those are the three classes of rocks, uh, and a little bit about how they form and how they're classified. There's obviously a lot more to say there, which uh, hopefully will be left to future episodes. So before wrapping up, there's just one brief little final topic that I wanted to discuss, um, which relates to how the different rocks are Rock types are related to each other, and this is called the rock cycle, which you may have heard of before. It's also something that seems to be taught um, quite a lot. So the rock cycle just explains the relationship between the different types of rocks. Now, it's important not to think of it as some sort of um, determinate cycle. Rocks don't have to go around in any one direction, or necessarily will ever move beyond one form that they're in. I mean, it depends on what physical processes are operating what environment they're in. The point is, though, that rocks, uh, or minerals that uh, comprise them, can cycle between a number of different forms. Basically, magma, igneous rocks, sedimentary rocks, and metamorphic rocks. And there are particular processes that interrelate those forms. So, we've already mentioned a number of them. We'll start with an igneous rock. Actually, we'll start with magma. That's a more natural standpoint, uh, a starting point, because that's the form that minerals take in the Earth's mantle, or at least parts of the Earth's mantle. So magma, basically liquid minerals. Um, When those cool, they crystallize, solidify to form an igneous rock. Now, if you melt that, it can go back to form a magma, magma, or if you heat it and subject to it sufficient pressure but such that it doesn't melt, but it changes its structure or form, um, that forms a metamorphic rock. And you can, of course, melt a metamorphic rock back to a magma. You can melt anything back to a magma although typically you don't melt a sedimentary rock directly to a magma because first it will metamorphise and then it will melt. We've got, at the moment, igneous and metamorphic rocks, which can melt to magmas. Um, Magma can't cool directly to a metamorphic rock because it cools to an igneous rock and which then, subject to heat and pressure, can become a metamorphic rock. But what about sedimentary rocks? How do they fit in? Well, both metamorphic and igneous rocks, either of those can be subject to weathering and erosion effects, that I mentioned before, which form sediments. Sediments themselves aren't rocks, they're sort of fragments of rocks, if you want to think of it that way, which then, through further processes, sedimenting and compactation processes, form sedimentary rocks. Sedimentary rocks, in turn, can also be subject to weathering and erosion to form new sediments and then new sedimentary rocks, or they can be subject to um, heat and pressure to form metamorphic and then finally um, melt to form magma. So that's the relationship between the three different rock types. And again, that this isn't shouldn't be thought of as a deterministic cycle. I mean, uh, a given mineral substance can just sit as a metamorphic rock for a billion years, and, you know, that's perfectly fine. But it just describes the relationships between the different types of rocks. And there's obviously a lot more to say there about how and when each of these processes um, takes place, but that's um, for a future episode. So that concludes what I wanted to say today. Uh, I wanted to finish out the episode with just a brief announcement, I suppose, or explanation about the podcast and its future. So you may have noticed that there hasn't been an episode in about six months. Um, That's pretty poor form on my part, I apologise for that. The reason for this is that I've been unusually busy lately, and um, unfortunately the podcast has had to take a back seat. When I first started the podcast, which is over five years ago now, unbelievably, I wasn't as busy as I am now. Uh, I didn't have as many additional commitments, so at the moment I i still studying, um, and I'm, I've actually taken on more subjects than, than I had in the past um, over the summer and other th- times like that, which keeps me busier. But I'm also working part-time, um, uh, I'm involved in a couple of clubs at, at university and elsewhere, I'm writing a, I am writing. write a, on a blog periodically, and I'm also, um, my newest project is I'm, I'm writing a book. This book do- unfortunately doesn't really have much to do with the podcast, although there might be one or two episodes I could get out of it, uh, because some of it does relate to cosmology. So, for the most part, the readings, reading that I do for the blog and podcast are not related to each other, or the book in the podcast. The book and the blog that I write are mostly related to, basically, philosophical questions, and um, particularly about religion, which I'm quite interested in. You can check out my blog at thegodlesstheist.com if you're interested in that. But unfortunately, it doesn't relate directly to the podcast, so it, it means that there's a certain um, diversion of resources. Now, what I will do is um, ensure that the past episodes are always accessible on the on the website so those are always going to be up so i encourage people to go back there listen to past episodes there's a wealth of material there the episodes are designed to be timeless there's no real news material or anything that gets out of date there for the most part Um, and also there is plenty of content within each episode so i've designed them so that they can have re-listening value particularly you know six months a year later you can re-listen to them and um, it's a good way of revising material The podcasts are really designed to be a learning aid and to help people be exposed to new knowledge, so that's what I've made them for. So please continue to take advantage of them and stay subscribed if you are. There's no cost to staying subscribed. Um, In terms of the future of the podcast, in terms of new content, I've decided that what I'll do is commit to producing a new episode every three to four months, which is not especially regular, I I know, so it can be thought of as a continuation of the current sort of quasi-dormant status. Um, but it's not completely dormant. I want to have a little bit of new content uh, dribbling out occasionally. Please feel free to continue emailing me. Um, someone mentioned, uh, brought to my attention, that one past episode wasn't working properly in terms of downloading it. I still don't know why that happened, but I was able to re-upload it and fix that. So if there are any issues like that, please bring them to my attention. You can contact me at fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thank you uh, for your continued support. I do hope in the future, maybe year, two years down the road, to um, continue more regular um, production of episodes. If I have more time and some of my other projects um, free up some time for me, I have many more episodes that I'd like to produce. Um, so there's there's easily another hundred episodes that I could do in terms of content, but it does take a certain amount of time, um, which I just don't have at the moment, unfortunately. So thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.